Hello and welcome to the shiny new object podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week I have the pleasure and the privilege of speaking to someone influential, exciting from the industry and this week is no different. I have Alex Willis who is Head of Communications, Content and Digital at Wimbledon. We were introduced by podcast sponsor Coros. So thank you, Graham, for getting us together. It's a real privilege to be here. I've never been to Wimbledon before, so it's so nice to be able to look out uh, of this office and you know see what is uh, a very exciting place to be. So thank you, Alex. Could you give the listeners to this podcast an overview of what you do and how you do it? Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here to Wimbledon. Um, so, uh, the, I think the most straightforward way of characterising what I'm lucky enough to do is essentially look after Wimbledon's external positioning. So that's how it's how it's perceived um, across all of the different platforms and mediums that we have available to us, whether that's digital, whether that's social media, whether that's the way we work with the media, comms, PR, the way we communicate with our different types of guests and fans. Um, and try and make sure that we're reflecting the brilliant place and and brilliant brand that Wimbledon is. It's not just a a stuffy old uh, traditional tennis tournament, it's actually a a really fascinating place and and something that people hopefully are inspired by and look up to. And it it, it actually has struck me how impressive the place is once you're actually here. I haven't seen it on t- TV my whole life, but uh, yeah, it, like it feels like the opposite of a, a stuffy tennis club. So that's that's excellent stuff. So let's uh, we'll 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 dig into the into the job later on. But first of all, we have getting to know your questions. So let's go through some of those. Uh, it's, they're always the same. So what is the most useful thing that you've spent your own money on? So not something that you've expensed or you know kind of swiped from the office, but that you've actually spent your own money on, but you use for work. So this may sound a bit bonkers because I should have just expensed it, but um, I bought an Apple TV um, as a Christmas present to myself. Okay. Um, and it's been amazing because it's actually helped me understand how complicated OTT is. An OTT over-the-top TV is one of those buzzwords really, really prevalent in in sport at the moment and everyone is saying they should have an OTT platform. Can Um, you just explain OTT for someone who might not fully understand what that is? Yes, so it's OTT uh, stands for over the top and that means uh, TV or content that you can access directly through the internet on your TV rather than needing to buy a subscription to something like Sky um, or Freeview or Um, access TV through a traditional channel. One of the biggest ways of thinking about it is that instead of picking up your normal TV remote, you'd probably pick up a different kind of remote. So in America, people are really used to using Hulu and they'll use an Apple TV or they'll use um, some other kind of device, a PlayStation, to open up this whole library or world of the internet through their big screen, um, which is often the best screen to watch things on. Um, So this sort of exploration of of Apple TV, we were talking about ways to challenge ourselves to learn new things. And for me, um, I I think about it all the time, is if it's been hard enough for me to get my head around using an Apple TV versus turning on my TV, you think about landmark decisions like tennis moving to Amazon Prime, 
and how all those people who watch and love tennis have got to get to grips with that and understand it. It's just been quite interesting. And what were the challenges with OTT? What what were the, the main problems you came up and had to get your head around? I think it's it's uh, it's how people find something, how they discover something. We get very used to picking up the remote and turning it on and you watch what's on. One of the reasons that, that Wimbledon has the relationship it does with the UK is the fantastic partnership we have with the BBC. And it is amazing how you still notice a difference in audience from when BBC when Wimbledon is on BBC One versus BBC Two, because you pick up your remote and you turn it on and it's on BBC One. So I think that's one aspect, it's discoverability of, of content. Um, and then I think the other aspect is is sort of user behaviour and, and this whole um, dynamic of when people want to be completely live, when they want to be catching up and looking at highlights and, and then how much you feel the pressure to add other features. So on the Formula One uh, platform, you can access different cameras from the race course and that's all about deepening someone's love of, of, of a sport, but that's only something that's gonna be of interest to a, a relatively small number of people. So this whole whole dynamic of how do we manage our relationships with our core fan base through our core TV relationships, but how do we also explore all the other possibilities that are out there to develop content and, and how do we where do we put it? How do we put it on? So some of those types of things I think we're all still figuring out. I think you should, probably should have expensed that if you could have. Yeah, <laughs> it's I know. Like quite I know. An expensive. Well, I do use it to watch Netflix. So <laughs> of course. So, Wimbledon is famous for preparation, and I, I was very surprised to hear you say from the list of questions that I could ask you that you were prepared to talk about your biggest screw-up at work, um, and for a business that's hot on preparation, I'm very interested to know, what is that mistake you've made where you're like, at the time it was horrible, but you're so glad you made that mistake because you learned something from it that has been invaluable since? So I think um, one of the things that we're known for, as you say, is, is excellence and, and perfection. And um, but at the same time, you have to be, you have to not be afraid to fail, because otherwise you're not necessarily going to challenge yourself, and and you're not going to learn in the same way that that you can. And one of our greatest challenges is that we have one event a year so we have one opportunity to test learn and get it right all at the same time um which which is brings with it a, a lot of pressure in 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 many ways but also definitely uh, an aversion to risk um so my my example would would be um we we chose to to stretch the way we presented um uh, an exhibition of posters that we had in in the museum um, we had this wonderful exhibition of the most famous posters that there have been in tennis. And if I was to ask you a question about a tennis poster that would spring to mind to you, it would probably be the infamous tennis girl, who is a lady wearing a short tennis dress, um, slightly holding a tennis ball and, and being a bit suggestive, let's say. And this is a pretty famous poster. And so we were getting to grips with how we promoted this this. Um, museum exhibition, um, using social media to do so because lots of people don't know that we even have a museum here at Wimbledon. And so we use that poster um, to to say, 
you know, we're really proud to be exhibiting some of the most famous posters in tennis. We've actually even got the dress from this, this famous poster on, on display. And um, it being social media, there was uh, a bit of an uproar. How could you, Wimbledon, how could you um, use such a sort of obvious route to, to market and promote your, um, your collection? We're really disappointed in you. Um, and it was just this sort of torrent of, of feeling. And um, this was quite overwhelming for us when, when we like to think, well, we, we get things right and we, and we get the tempo and the measure of things right. So um, we deleted the tweet. And this was the mistake that we made because at that moment it became a story. At that moment, the mainstream media picked up on the fact that Wimbledon had succumbed to uh, sort of people not liking what they saw and kind of you know, losing conviction and, 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 and deleting this tweet. Um, and it was just a, a very, it was an interesting example sometimes of try something, stick to your guns. If it doesn't work out, people are going to react, but that's not necessarily a reason to tell yourself that you did the wrong thing. And um, I'm not saying that that's a, a lesson to live by in, in every scenario. In, in some situations, it would have been right to, to delete it. But I think um, in that example, it was, um, you know, be, be forthright in your own convictions is sort of what I took from that experience. And what would you have done differently? Would you have just left it up there and just responded to every tweet or come up with a, an alternative? I, I think we probably would have acknowledged the feeling of those people who were upset by it, um, but, but not deleted it, not, not, um, not turned it into something it wasn't meant to be, which was um, this, this sort of, um, you know, Wimbledon shows its fallibility almost by um, doing something and then rowing back on it. Whereas if we'd done it in the first place, we should have just owned it. So that's a great bit of advice. Uh, so if you were, and I'm sure you do, speak to young people trying to get into the industry or having just started in the industry, what advice would you give to someone starting out their career in marketing, and assuming that they work really hard and have a great attitude and all the rest of it? Although those kind of, um, you know, things that you have to have at the start, what would the extra bit of advice you'd give them to succeed? I think it would be, um, you, you never know what a, a chance meeting or chance conversation might lead to. And so soak it up and have as many as you possibly can. And when you're, when you're in a, a career where you know, you've, you've got obligations and expectations and Making time for those types of things can be a challenge in terms of, of, of the diary, but you know, many organisations, if you pitch to them, I'm really interested in this area, will you let me go and explore it and set up a whole load of meetings about it? They'll reward you for that and they would view it very positively because we all want creative and inquisitive people working in this industry because, same point, that's how we challenge ourselves to, to get better is by people asking questions and wanting to know and find out more and, and learn. So it would really be that willingness to embrace the opportunity that's out there in terms of different people's expertise and, um, and different people's opinions on, on things. I've certainly hugely benefited from the time that other people have been willing to give me in, in learning about what we do. And, um, and it can just be, just phrase it as a 15 minute cup of coffee and you'd be amazed by how many people say yes. So do you have a, 
a story about a chance meeting for you because in order to arrive at that advice of uh, and have you can you think of a a situation where you put yourself out there and explored a new subject and met someone and that changed things for you? Yeah, I mean, um, there are, are a few in with different scenarios to them. So um, I decided I wanted to be a sports journalist and um, having rejected going to law school, which my parents were obviously thrilled about, um, and I wrote to various uh, publications and magazines and and newspaper editors, sports editors of newspapers, asking for a coffee. And many of them didn't reply, but some of them did. And um, the sports editor at the time of The Telegraph said, sure, I'll I'll give you 15 minutes. Um, And we just had a really interesting chat about um, how he thought lacrosse was a rubbish sport and I played lacrosse at university. Um, And then he said, you know, I'll I'll keep your details and and I'll, I'll be in touch. He then ended up letting me know that they were advertising for a job, which I went for, I didn't get, but then another opportunity came up and I was sort of first on on the list. So um, if I hadn't been young and naive enough to go and have that coffee with him, I would have just been another faceless name and CV in in a process. So that's definitely uh, one example. Um, I think the others are are sort of more symptomatic of, of the industry that we're in, which is there's so much stuff that we could be exploring and doing. And one of the reasons why your podcast is so interesting is it's helping people navigate that, that landscape of loads of different things. And often it's too tempting to just send an email to, to someone to say, I've got this piece of tech or this business, when actually if you pick up the phone or arrange a meeting and go and have a chat with them, you may find that something you've discounted, I'm very guilty of this, I discount something and say that's not going to work for us because of X and Y. But if you have a conversation, it may actually turn out to be a perfect match. So the other side of saying yes to 15-minute meetings and saying yes to going to events and speaking at events and doing podcasts is that your diary fills up. And so you have to... You have to say no at some point. So have you worked out how to say no? Have you become better at saying no? Is there any specific thing that you say no to now that you didn't in the last few years? And I've, I've got an understanding of your, yes, let's look into this strategy. But what, what is the, what was your approach to the counter? I, th- I think, candidly, it's probably been one of my biggest challenges has been um, recognising the, the limits on our own time, both my personal time, but also... I work as part of a broader team, I work for a business, and even though I may think we've got the capacity to do something (laughs) in May, um, ahead of the championships beginning in July, if it has an impact on lots of other people, that's not fair for me to to make that assessment. Um, And uh, I've definitely had some, some tough moments where I've tried to pursue something and actually it was the wrong thing to do, partly because of this frantic desire to not miss the opportunity of a tournament and then wait a whole year for it to come round again, by which point in time the world will have moved on and that thing that we desperately wanted to prove or try, whether it's augmented reality or some kind of 360 camera or some kind of game, is probably no longer relevant. So I think it's been a a bit of a growing up has made me better... um, at, at saying no and, and, and realising that respect for, for my colleagues, respect for everything that we're all trying to do. Um, 
So it's it's probably setting some some limits on my own calendar in terms of saying past this point in the year, not a good idea to think of new opportunities. Um, but equally, uh, thinking about my week and saying I I can dedicate this amount of time to new interesting chats. Um, thinking about my uh, month in terms of it's realistic for me to spend a day um, you know a day a month at, at an event or at a conference. Um, because otherwise I just know I won't get everything else done that, that I need to and um, it's like a pie chart uh, I guess in terms of where you allocate your time so so that, there seems to be a lovely balance in your head of, uh, of, of uh, things you want to do and but also sparing the team but also learning new things it, it's really interesting to hear how you juggle all that all that stuff but if you could name one thing that's been the best use of your time, energy, or money in the last few years, what would it be? Uh, definitely developing a team and developing people that I work with. Um, I'm, you know, we're very lucky. We work for Wimbledon, and um, it's a place that lots of people would love to work at. But finding the right types of people who will both embrace the fact that we're a small business and therefore. Um, you do have to be a bit of a jack of all trades in, in some ways. So if we hire you to um, uh, be a, a sort of digital producer, you will be expected to upload jobs to the website and do funky stuff on, on Instagram. It's, it's not always going to be the glamorous stuff. Um, and the, the, the response of the people that, that do work here and their willingness to learn and forcing ourselves to give them the time to go and learn and opportunity to pitch business cases and ideas to go and look at what other people do and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's been incredibly rewarding, but it's helped make us do a better job. It's helped me make me do a better job. Um, and so if you're going to invest money in anything, I'd always say people. Fantastic. So we're at the halfway stage of the podcast and I feel we've got to know you a bit now, so excellent, good stuff. But we need to talk about your shiny new object. What is your shiny new object, Alex? So um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the way that we've used um, AI, and by AI, I define it as artificial intelligence, um, but I'd also describe it as augmented intelligence. So what we don't mean is replacing things entirely with a computer or a machine. What we mean is making use of a computer and a machine to make us more efficient, but still very much have a human role in, in the output. And as I explain it, hopefully it will make a bit more sense. But the reason why I particularly wanted to share this, this story of, of how we use AI at Wimbledon is because it's been unexpected. We talked a bit about Wimbledon being this traditional brand um, and our traditions are definitely our strongest attributes. You think about grass court tennis, white clothing, strawberries and cream, pims, champagne, picnicking, the royal box, centre court. These are all things that we're known for and they differentiate us. But we do have a challenge with making sure that those traditions don't become obsolete and they don't pigeonhole us too much as quirky, eccentric, not for me. Um, and so we've worked very hard at, at making sure that we use innovation um, not to conflict with our traditions, which has sometimes been the case. We've talked about balancing tradition and innovation, 
but actually using innovation to keep our traditions relevant. And the way we use AI, um, I think, is, is a really good um, example of that. And fundamentally, what we're trying to achieve, you mentioned that you understood Wimbledon better or appreciated it more by being here. And we talk a lot about to know Wimbledon is to love it. So how do we get you to know it if you probably don't have the opportunity to come here? So what we've done is, is essentially say um, AI is a set of tools that can help us make our processes more efficient. And so we can go faster and further with the content that we create during the championships. With the idea being that putting content in the right places is going to help our audiences in all sorts of different countries around the world understand Wimbledon better and appreciate it and hopefully therefore become a fan. So there's two, two ways that we've done this. The first is in the way we produce video content. We used to do what most sports events do and have a, a brilliant team sitting curating highlights of matches. Um, and it would take them around an hour after the end of each match to, to turn around the highlights. Um, and often they would be their impression or interpretation of what had been interesting or exciting about that match. And we find that, that fans would respond and say, this is great, but I really wanted to see that bit where Roger Federer came to the net and did something interesting. Or I'm actually only a fan of Maria Sharapova or Serena Williams, so I'm only interested in what she did. I'm not so bothered about what her opponent did at the other side of, of the net. So this, this thirst and quest for content in a personalizable way, um, we thought, well, let's see if we can find a way to, to respond to that. And so working with, with IBM, who um, a fantastic partner to us in, in this space, they essentially defined a, a means of clipping every single point of a match and then ranking it based on three different factors. So they'd rank the point based on um, the noise from the crowd. Therefore, how exciting was that point? Did the crowd really respond? They'd rank it based on what the player themselves did. So uh, they used facial recognition technology to see if the player was celebrating. Did they have a big smile on their face? Were they fist pumping? Were they sort of yelling and reacting? That's taken a lot of time because players do all sorts of things when they're playing tennis. Often they, they do a gesture in front of their face, um, almost like they're wiping it, which is to say, please can I have my towel? Now you wouldn't want to misconstrue that and say that that's them celebrating a, a great point. And then the third metric was actually the statistic itself. So was it um, a break point? Was it a particularly notable thing that, that might have happened in, in the match? And you put those three things together and you get this excitement um, scale. So our video editors are able to look in a dashboard and see every match with every point ranked according to excitement. And they can then say, this is where the human part comes in. Uh, for this match, there are so many exciting points that we're going to make the highlights two minutes instead of one minute, and we're going to pick the most exciting ones. Or they could say, for this match, the story was just about the incredible performance of one player, so we're only going to pick points by that player. So it gives this control but informed insight to back to the video editors so that they're able to be much more flexible and, and acknowledge um, what different fans might be interested in and what the story of that match is. What we'd then like to do, which we haven't yet got to, 
is actually start to segment these highlights by countries from different territories, which we could then give to our broadcast partners. So our broadcaster in France could receive just the highlights of the French players, same for the UK, same for the US and, and so on. This is really, really relevant in countries such as China or Japan, where they are really only interested in how their players perform. Um, and similarly, the other types of things we could do would be um, montages of different things. So not just most exciting points, but all the aces or all the first serves or all the, um, you know, you name it, whatever mm. type of category you, you might want. So this combination of, of machine and, and man hasn't just made us more aware of, of what's happening in a tennis match, but also the volume and speed. So I should have said, we can now turn around these highlights within four or five minutes of the match finishing. So acknowledging consumer behavior and this thirst for speed instantaneous is, is um, a, another significant part of it. So, so I'm really interested in the connection between the, the machine and, and the human. I mean, like, that's part of the business that I run is that it's like, okay, well, what's a, what's a machine really good at? What's a human really good at? Mm -hmm. I'm really pushing those things separately. So I'm amazed and I didn't had no idea that, the, that it worked like this, but so the, the editor gets the you know, top one, top 10, top 50 points. And then they just go, I want that one, that one, that one, that one. Then that gets uh, rendered together as a, as a, uh, as a highlights. Um, so how how is it so quick? Could do they just kind of um, like how long is the render time? Like I'm really, I'd love to know what the mental process is and how did you have to try that lots of times? Did it not work originally? What was the creative process to get the balance right between uh, the human and the machine? So it's taken about three years, and and wow. this is um, another one of the challenges of of this annual single annual event. Um, and the, the, the progression each year has been making the clipping of the points more accurate. So one of the challenges was um, dealing with transitions and making sure that we weren't fading a point into the next one too abruptly so that the, the end user, you still want it to feel like it's something that's been lovingly created, not something that is um, uh, has only been done by a machine. Um, we have written rules, so if an, if an editor was to say, I kind of know um, which matches I want to do the excitement points compilation on, and I kind of know I want it to be this length of time, so that those rules would allow it to be rendered automatically, which is what helps deliver the speed. But if the person wanted to go in and adjust those rules or, or fiddle with it a bit, they could. We've also then made longer form pieces of content that are more analysis based, where the, that person is literally picking out that point, annotating things over it, which is a much more involved process. And that's more about explaining, you know, tennis is not the most accessible sport, explaining what's a break point and what's a first serve and who cares about first serve percentage and all these types of things. Going back to the ambition, which is to make Wimbledon more accessible and more understood, um, that's something we've we've worked quite hard on as well. So what's next? What I kind of it's quite a cheeky thing to ask, but like, what what is the um, the innovation ambition for that product moving forward? What can we expect next year? 
So we currently do it on um, the show courts where we've got the most uh, robust, as it were, line calling, um, which is 10 courts. There are 18 courts here um, during, during the fortnight, so we'd love to get to 18 courts. Um, we'd love to get to um, the ability to do qualifying as well, and, and that's for the same kind of reason, the, the infrastructure that's set up in terms of the, the data that comes out that makes it possible isn't the same at qualifying as it is is here. Um, and then I think the third aspect is is the thing I mentioned about opening access up to this, to all of our broadcast partners, because we're looking for ways to add value uh, and make their lives easier. Um, and it doesn't make sense for all of us to be trying to create highlights of the same match. So we already share with them the ones that we do create, and it's up to them whether they choose to use them or not. Um, but giving them the ability to actually have the tooling and play with it and feed it into their processes. Uh, a self-serve, make-your-own highlights reel. Yeah, right? exactly. So this ridiculous suggestion, but I mean, I, I don't know, obviously, intimately what other tennis clubs have available technically and do, if they have partnerships with, with IBM, but potentially you've got the largest data set of live tennis anywhere and if you do this for three years I'm sure you've been capturing footage in different ways would it be conceivable that you would become a predictive service like could you could you create a percentage of likelihood of this second serve going in could you could you predict the outcome the likelihood of an outcome of a match because if you're if you're tracking obviously the points and the speed but also the emotion using the facial tracking you could see when someone started to lose belief in themselves or, mm -hmm. or would Wimbledon just be like no, I wouldn't go anywhere near this because we're, your function is to report and promote as opposed to predict perhaps So I think it's a, a, um, a really good question because it, it ties in and, and we're trying to be aware of the trends that are happening in the, in the broader sports and entertainment industry and choose what to do but going back to our previous conversation also choose what not to do and and what would not be appropriate for us to to, to dive into but we do really recognize the, the point I made before about um, tennis being difficult to understand um, more than half of our TV audience don't watch any other tennis during the year they watch Wimbledon um, what's the barrier to entry for tennis for new people all of that kind of stuff um, and then also acknowledge the huge drive for and growth in gaming and um, people being interested in um, being able to manipulate things, have their own say, be part of it. Um, so we've, we've had something for a number of years called Keys to the Match, um, which uh, IBM also developed. And that aims to not necessarily predict the outcome of the match, but use machine learning to crunch a whole load of data and predict the things or the factors that are going to be relevant in that match that a player would have to do in able to win. So um, it could be, for example, for Andy Murray to beat Novak Djokovic, he needs to get X percent of his first serves in, he needs to make X percent of returns, and he needs to make sure he goes to the net. Now, the way that we've presented that has been very data-heavy and not particularly accessible. So it's perfectly conceivable that we could try and bring keys to the match and AR highlights together and help make it 
easier to understand because you're actually using video content, you're using something that is gonna help educate people. That's definitely on, on, on the radar. How much it becomes a prediction service, we may then be straying too much towards betting and, and, and that kind of thing. But another thing that we're definitely thinking about, which comes back to your point about we're sitting on this vast amount of content, is actually opening up our archive to fans and almost enabling them to create their own highlights from that archive. Um, Fox Sports did something a bit like this for the FIFA World Cup um, in 2018. They called it the Fox Sports time machine, I think. And you could basically go, go in and pick a, an old World Cup match and basically be able to tab through it and, and look at the point, look at the goals, not points, that you were interested in. And we were thinking about a scenario where you could give um, any, any fan access to any match um, and almost put the onus on them to say, these are the things I'm most interested in. Can I find out more about this type of player, which we could then create more, more content around? Very raw idea and, and not developed at all. But um, the, the point is applying the, the technology to different pools of data that we have, whether that be video content, statistics, etc. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a conversation with someone who will have to re remain nameless that I, I met who runs a a sports betting company, and he essentially employs hundreds and hundreds of developers offshore uh, to create a algorithm that predicts the outcome of football matches, and mm -hmm. then they they bet money of those predictions and they, that's his living <laughs> that's, uh, he's got a massive house um, <laughs> I, just, I didn't, even, didn't even know this thing existed and so they they take all of the data from previous football matches mm -hmm. and then write algorithms to try and predict the outcome of games that they know the result yep. you know, so if you watch I don't know 500 games in one year and then you keep on keep on changing the algorithm until it predicts the uh to the future, which which is just like absolutely crazy, and, and uh, you, as as you say, you're you're never going to go anywhere near gambling. But it makes me wonder that uh, what makes sport so interesting for me is that you feel like you can predict the outcome, but you can't. Uh, you can swear that you think this outcome is going to happen, but it but it it's just ever so slightly different. And I wonder with AI, and I wonder with the amount of data that you're capturing, that actually prediction might take that uncertainty out of a sport yeah I think you you could definitely um, no one no one likes a foregone conclusion um, you know we, we see that in the conversation about tennis matches on social media you see it in viewing figures um, when when someone is expected to win and they win really easily that's not the kind of thing that gets people energized and it doesn't show off sport and tennis and Wimbledon as a stage on which sport is played to, to its best. Um, one thing that is, is, has been interesting to us though and, and niggling away as a similar sort of idea is, so the, uh, one of the unsung days of any tennis tournament is the day that the draw is done because it's not a particularly interesting process and I hugely admire other sports who've managed to make their draws um, uh, with lots of razzmatazz and, and so on. But the first question that people are talking about when a draw is done is, oh, who's in Federer's half? Who's in Serena's half? Who's in Nadal's half? 
who are they going to have to beat in order to win? And you start thinking about this progression and, and build up of excitement in seeing whether or not they can do it. And if they're more likely to beat their opponent or, the, or they're less likely to beat their op opponent. And um, we've, we've tried to think about what we could show to, again, tennis fans and non-tennis fans to educate them on that progression through the draw and therefore ultimate likelihood of winning the whole tournament. Not in an odds way, but in a help me understand who to follow and who to pay attention to and who might be the dark horse. And not just using the data that we have, um, which is obviously going to be about performance, but also what do the pundits think? And again, there's been some exploration of this in, in NFL, helping people pick their fantasy teams, which is based more around what does the ESPN analyst think and what does the Wall Street Journal analyst think. And, and we have that same thing here in, in, in tennis where someone will say, oh, I think Novak Djokovic is absolutely at the top of his game and someone else will disagree with them and, and that, that creates debate. And how do we harness that conversation as, as part of this, this sort of view as well, which makes it less subject to it being a certainty or it being an actuality because it's an opinion. Um, so we'll see where we get to with that. But it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because you're trying to you're trying to program people's natural enthusiasm and interest, but do it in such a way that's helpful, not not a hindrance, I guess. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we both got a really hard stop. But that was fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I I had an idea of uh, the detail and insight we'd get from this, but uh, that really definitely exceeded what I thought we were going to cover. So, thank you so much, man. That was super interesting. If anyone wanted to get in touch with you to address some of the challenges that you mentioned, how would you like them to do it? Like LinkedIn or email or Twitter? What's your preferred channel? Yeah, so um, probably LinkedIn. Um, you can just search for Alexandra Willis. Um, I should should come up. Um, I also, I don't tweet as regularly as I used to. Not scarred by the tennis girl dress um, scenario, but um, <laughs> you can pl please do follow me if you're interested. Um, it's just at Alex underscore Willis. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you.